Welcome to Blamo, a podcast exploring the world of fashion and technology with the personalities that shape it. My guest this week is Jack Carlson. I spoke with Jack, the author and archaeologist and three-time member of the U.S. men's rowing team, about how his love of rowing culture led to the creation of his recently launched clothing brand, Rowing Blazers. Let's do it. Dr. Jack Carlson, Mr. Jack. Has anyone ever called you Mr. Jack? No, I, I get doctor sometimes yeah. because it's on my, it's, it's really pretentious, but it's on my business cards. It is? Oh yeah, it is. I remember when I got yours. So, but that's the proper way to do it. Yeah, it is. I mean, you're a doctor, technically. I, yeah. I spent all those years. I mean, you got to get something out of it. Yeah. So Dr. Jack Carlson, you are on Blamo. Thanks again. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. Um, big reason I wanted to have you on is I met you when I was working at the Armory maybe, I don't know, half a year ago, something like that. Uh, and I had known you because you had written a book called Rowing Blazers, but you were in the process of starting a brand, Rowing Blazers. And basically, the stuff that I wanted to talk to you about is some of your background and also the fact that you are a doctor of what I was trying to see exactly what you studied. What did you say? It was like Asian and Roman. Yeah, I did. Um, well, I'm an archaeologist. That's what it is. You're I, an Indiana, Indiana Jack. Yeah, that Indiana Jones, that's exactly what it's like being an archaeologist. So if anybody, uh, any listeners have ever seen the Indiana Jones films, that's exactly <laughs> what my daily life as an archaeologist is pretty much like. You're, you're running and you're fighting the Nazis and um, you have Sean Connery as your dad. All of it. That yeah. part actually is, is probably the closest thing that is true. <laughs> My dad is, is quite an explorer in his own right. Um, Wait, is that true? That's true, yeah. He, last year, uh, he went to, he didn't go to the South Pole, but he went to Antarctica, and he also went to the North Pole. And he was one of the first people to be at the North Pole during the solstice. Holy shit. I'm trying to go, actually, we're planning together to go to the South Pole. Um, Does he call you junior? Like next year. No. Okay. No, I'm not junior. <laughs> but um, what I studied was uh, Roman archaeology and also Qin and Han dynasty Chinese archaeology, which is the same period as the Roman Empire, but in China. And I do comparative work between the two empires. Holy moly. And from what I heard, there's a rumor that you're also fluent in how many other languages? Well, I'm not as uh, fluent in Chinese as I used to be. Right. I was at the School of Foreign Service at Georgetown for my undergrad, and I had to pass like the School of Foreign Service proficiency exam in Chinese, and now I actually have no idea how I possibly passed it. <laughs> um, I do have to read like Chinese excavation reports. Right. For my work, but speaking and listening, it's a mystery to me now how I ever passed it. Wow. Um, but then, you know, I did Latin for, for many, many years. Sure. And you have to read, as an archaeologist, you have to read excavation reports in French and German and Italian. But, I mean, I use a dictionary, especially with the German. I mean, you kind of fake it a little bit. You get the gist of what they're saying. Um, yeah. But yeah, that's, uh, that's my background so, as an archaeologist. You grew up on the East Coast? I did. I lived in England for a couple of years when I was a really little kid, but okay. I basically grew up um, in Boston. Okay. And so this is like, where, where did rowing come in? Because when I had met you, and even actually, I think when I'd even heard of you, it was because you had written a book called Rowing Boysers. Um, well, how, does, how does rowing fit into this and you know we don't have to linger too much on any certain thing but i am curious as to how that 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 gets into play yeah i mean i went to a high school in cambridge massachusetts um that is one of the oldest rowing programs high school rowing programs in the country right. and it was actually the first american school to win henley royal regatta which is kind of like the wimbledon of rowing if you will and when I, I remember actually when I was interviewing at the school, 
Um, it's called Buckingham Brown and Nichols, uh, or BBNN for short. When I was interviewing, my interviewer, who was a Spanish teacher at the school, said, so what sports would you play here at BBNN? And uh, do you know we have, we have a very prominent rowing program here at the school? Or no, she said crew program. Oh. And I said, what's crew? I had no idea what she was even talking about. And she said, you know, out in a boat and with an oar. I thought it was kind of like sailing or something. I had no idea what She's she like, was talking about. She's like, it's what's on the Abercrombie shirts. And I, <laughs> and I kind of said, um, no, I think uh, I play Little League Baseball. Oh, okay. So I said, no, I think I'll probably just play baseball. Did but you have to play a sport? Is that why? You had to play... You had to play uh, a few different sports, okay. yeah. Um, but I was thinking like baseball would be my main sport because I had always played Little League growing up. And um, I got there, I played baseball for a year, didn't really love it, and all of my friends were on the rowing team. And uh, my my math teacher was, a, was the rowing coach. This was in middle school, in fact. So I was like 11 years old, 12 years old. Oh, wow. And they were all saying, why don't you just join the rowing team? And so I did. Um, they said, you'd be, the, you'd be a perfect coxswain, which is the guy who s- sits at the end of the boat. You don't row when you're the coxswain, but you oh. steer and you make the calls. Okay. They said, you'd be the perfect coxswain. I mean, at the time, they made it sound like that's a good thing. Being the perfect coxswain, it means you're small and you're kind of loud and bossy. <laughs> and, okay. Uh, so I signed up, and I actually loved being the coxswain. Right. And I stuck with that all through high school. Um, I I was uh, on the team all the way through at Georgetown, and then I wanted to keep going after college. And so, it's one of the reasons, to be perfectly honest, why I went to Oxford for grad school is because I could continue training there, and I could continue coxing at a higher and higher level and all the time that i was at oxford for about six and a half years i would come back to the u.s during the summers and i would usually try out for the u.s team and then um i was on the u.s team three times and continued to train with the u.s team after i finished um at oxford as well so i had no idea how far really the sport would take me and how uh, great a role it would play in kind of delaying any kind of entry into the real world in my life. Um, but obviously, uh, I stuck with it for a long, a long time. Right. And crew is, so first off, every single sport, I feel like, has a bit of a heritage around it. So baseball has this heritage as like America's pastime, you know, for better or worse. And crew has always had this, this vibe of, club-like atmospheres, um, very specific types of uniform, and also kind of in, in uh, and you, please correct me on this, a off-the-field, quote, per se, uniform, which is this rowing blazer, right? Like, it was very, because I first heard about rowing blazers because I was doing stuff at Tom Brown in like 2005 or six. And I was like, what the hell is this thing with this jacket with all the, the grow grain on it? And they're like, oh yeah, that's for rowing. And I was like, well, who does that? <laughs> That's funny. Um, my first encounter, I guess, with, with rowing blazers was um, in 2004. It was my junior year in high school. They announced, uh, the coaches announced that we were going to go race at Henley Royal Regatta that summer. And it was actually, one of the reasons for this was it was the 75th anniversary of 1929 mm-hmm. when the school won Henley um, and, and became the first American high school to win Henley. Because it's a global global competition, right? Oh, it's, it's big. They have different yeah. events. There's a high school event. There's a women, women's event. There's eights event. There's doubles. There's singles. There's, there's all of it. Yeah. Um, but it's very, very prestigious, probably outside of the World Championships and the Olympic Games. It's the most prestigious race in the world, and is more historical than than all of them. Oh, okay. Um, and it's a big 
event on the British summer social calendar as well, like Wimbledon or Royal Ascot, that sort of thing. Um, and the dress code in the spectator enclosures, the stewards enclosure, they call it, uh, is very strict. Men have to wear blazers and ties, mm-hmm. and women have to wear dresses below the knee mm. and are, quote-unquote, encouraged to wear hats. Right. And I, I was familiar with this idea and, um, and thought, well, we, we need to get a blazer to go over. If we're going to go race at Henley, our team needs to have blazers made. Yeah. Um, and so that was actually my first, uh, my first blazer-related project. I went over to the Andover shop in Harvard Square in Cambridge. And I had done a bunch of research, actually, in the archives of the school to see what blazers were worn um, by the crew in 1929 and in the previous uh, trips to Henley that the school had taken. And we sort of replicated that. Right. And for those of you who don't know the Andover shop, it's, it's a clothing store that's, that's around the Harvard campus. And it's basically one of the most like old school sort of Ivy uh, classic menswear clothing stores. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, Charlie yeah. Davidson is probably a name that's known to to many of your listeners. Uh, it's an absolute legend um, uh, at the Andover shop, and and he helped us out. And so you you uh, apply this research stuff because I think one of the interesting things and and one of the reasons why I wanted to talk to you about all this stuff is um, a lot of people design and approach fashion as like a vibe. Right, like a feeling, like oh, I, I just want to capture this feeling, or I just want to to understand, you know, um, this emotion, and it's very ambiguous. But for for you, and I think this is great, you approach a lot of your stuff through history, through documented history, which makes sense, being uh, an archaeologist and having this background. But it's interesting to me that you're like, oh, we need a rowing blazer. You weren't just like, what are our colors? Let's think of something cool. Let's find a patch. Let's do something neat. You're like, let's study and find out exactly how this was at then like let's honor the history let's honor the heritage of this and i think that's really cool well i think a lot of it has to do with um of course i'm i'm interested in history generally speaking i'm I'm an archaeologist um but i also studied heraldry um the study of coats of arms oh damn um, (laughs) and and symbols, basically. Okay. And I actually used to work at the College of Arms in London, which is a, it's a government agency of the British government that still exists today that designs coats of arms for people and for institutions and colleges and so on. And um, How, Do they get much new business? They get a lot of new business. <laughs> actually, when I was there, um, uh, I didn't work on it, but... Um, Eric Clapton was uh, getting a, a grant of a coat of arms. Oh, sure. <laughs> I mean, a, a lot of... Uh, it's like, I want a guitar here. I lot... want a bird here. <laughs> His uh, coat of arms actually is, it's a sort of geomet- geometric pattern that looks like a guitar, kind of a stylized guitar. It's very cool. It's very clever. Wow. Um, a lot of these, you know, uh, celebrities, British celebrities who get knighted, get coats of arms designed and granted for them afterwards elton john has um has a great one that has like the keys on a piano at the top Uh and then below it has gold and platinum albums (laughs) i mean it's all geometric and kind of stylized because there are very strict rules also about how a coat of arms can be designed right go back to the middle ages so it has to follow all of those rules but it's that's actually really uh, it's cool. It's done a very cool and clever way. So, but I think my experience um, in heraldry and my background there has, um, yeah, has kind of impacted the way I approach a lot of these things. Right. Um, and makes me very keenly aware of um, what symbols mean and how they can be deployed and how they should be deployed. Mm-hmm. Um, on things like clothing, um, yeah, and of course, even the term "coat of arms," it comes from originally a garment that a knight would wear uh, with his emblem on it. Right. And it was only later that that design was put onto a shield as well. 
so there is a whole sartor- sartorial kind of origin, yeah, even for that whole field of heraldry, yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think this project with rowing blazers, uh, it brings together my interest in history and in heraldry and symbolism and emblems, um, and of course, and the sport of rowing and yeah. menswear all into kind of one convenient package. Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, well, so, let me, let's just backtrack a second here. So you go and you start researching uh, jackets for your team's competition for the, the regatta. Um, and from there, is that where you're like, holy cow, this is really awesome. I'm going to make a book about this or I'm going to, I need to document this. Or was there, was there a void at that time? Because for me, um, I didn't know a book about rowing blazers existed and I don't, think you can correct me on this there was one before then was there or at least one that was accessible there was there wasn't one yeah there wasn't one at all um but i guess the moment for me uh when i sort of had the thought someone should do a book about this it was actually once we were over there at henley and racing and of course i mean the blazers and all of the pageantry it's kind of like a side thing i mean your main focus is on competing right and henley uh, for anybody who doesn't know it's a series of single elimination um two boat races okay uh so it's like march madness it's like a big bracket each event is it's is its own bracket so you know you have the the more elite brackets where it's national teams but within each event so the high school race is a big bracket of its own where you just race one other boat at a time, and if you lose, you're out. And if you win, you go on to the next round, which is the next day. Right. And unfortunately, we lost in the first round. Oh, bummer. Which, yeah, which was a huge bummer. It's a huge deal to make that kind of trip, and it was pretty devastating to be knocked out in the first round. But what it did mean was that I had the rest of the regatta, the rest of the week, um, to hang out in the stewards' enclosure. Again, it's kind of a bummer. You're watching all this racing. You don't get to be part of it. You were knocked out. But I noticed all of these other really wild blazers. I mean, ours that we had made at the Andover shop that was based on our historical design was just navy blue with white trim with white grosgrain trim yeah. it's, it's very it's what, basic yeah it's, it's kind of what you would think of at least when you think of uh, a rowing blazer or something like that right but you go to henley and you see um people walking around with with like striped tie fabric as trim of their blazers or okay. all these colors that you wouldn't think should really go together like orange and purple or something like that um and you also see all these guys walking around with blazers that are kind of shredded. And it's, it's alarming to see. It's kind of startling to see in the store's enclosure. Like deteriorated, like shredded, you mean? Where like everybody's so well-dressed. And there are these guys with blazers that are falling apart, that are, you know, kind of threadbare or um, torn in places. Like the armhole is maybe like torn open. Um, and so I started just asking um and and chatting with a lot of these people uh, about their blazers right and they would tell me these crazy sort of club traditions that they have um at their at their home clubs a lot of these people were from britain of course a lot were from many were from the netherlands or from australia or south africa and uh or they'll tell me why they have a certain emblem on their pocket badge or on their tie, or they'll tell me some crazy story about how you earn these socks. Okay. It wasn't even just blazers. Yeah. But the blazer is is the focal point. And I thought, man, someone should do a book about these blazers and the stories and the traditions and the myths and the rituals behind them. And that was in 2004. And I guess fast forward to about 2011 or so yeah when i was at oxford and um you know i'd been on the national team and had friends all over the world in the rowing community and i kind of thought i should be the guy to do this book 
Right. No one, no one had still done it. You know, I mean, that was seven years later. Well, it seems like it'd be a tough thing to ask, real quick. Like, like if I go up to, because I think that there's one thing that, like, the elephant in the room uh, of all of those clubs is, I don't want to say pretentiousness, but like, it definitely feels like it's it's uh, an elite club that's very prestigious and so that being said for me i think my first reaction would be like i'm not gonna ask that guy why he looks like that or i'm not gonna you know it it would be intimidating for for myself like you know why is your jacket falling apart you know it did you throw it in a lawnmower like what like what are the things that happen uh so it's cool that you had that more or less courage to go and talk to these people about this well i don't think there was really any um courage necessary i think it was it's really just the sport of rowing is very close knit and it's very kind of fraternal and mm-hmm. i think it's something that it would would be very hard or it would have been very hard for someone not from that community to do but right. because i was part of the rowing world and um yeah you were a little bit more accepted yeah i mean you know i had reached kind of a certain level in the sport and i think that made it a lot easier for sure right but i think in general the sport of rowing is very different from a lot of professional sports like i think it would have been very hard to put this book together and to get you know to to have like preeminent soccer players from all over the world you know posing in their club jerseys with basically no compensation and just some other guy saying hey can we set up a time to (laughs) just talk to you for an hour about your traditions and to take pictures with you wearing your soccer jersey or to do this with basketball or pretty much any other sport. Yeah. I think it would have been pretty near impossible. But rowing is largely, uh, I mean, one of the last kind of amateur sports. Um, And... Well, why do you say amateur? Well, there is no professional rowing. I mean, you can be on the national team. That's... That's the you know highest level of the sport, but there's no professional league you know kind of underneath that. Yeah, like there's no LeBron James of rowing. There's no. There is, but they're just not getting paid like <laughs> LeBron James. <laughs> um, right. Okay. <laughs> so I think that's a, that's a component of it, but you know, as much as you say like, oh, it seems like these clubs are so elite and on and on. It's the vibe is not really like that in the sport of rowing. Sure. You know, I think people, people like to help each other out and generally there's not a lot of ego. I mean, the sport itself, if you think about it, it's, you know, it's a sport that kind of derives from like what Greek slaves on, on galley ships used to do. There's not a lot of, and there's not a lot of like, um, there's not like an element of, of kind of being a star in the sport. There are, yeah, well, there are sport. people who are very preeminent, but in like in an eight or a four or whatever, you're not going to say like, oh, but that guy was the superstar. You know, there's no opportunity even to stand out or to make a big play or something like that in the right. sport of rowing. So generally, actually, I think there's not a lot of ego um, in the sport. So it wasn't, it wasn't actually that um, sort of daunting. To, to take the project on. Right. So then you make the book. Book is great, by the way. And uh, then you. you're like, oh, I got a good idea. Now that I got my PhD and now that, you know, I'm Indiana Jones Jr., uh, why don't I start a clothing company? That makes a lot of sense. Like, I think, first off, before you respond, I think it is great. I when I fir- When you first told me about it, I was like, Oh, okay. This seems interesting. It seems maybe it'd be pretty, you know, tough and not very accessible. And in my head, I was like, do I want to wear rowing boys or do I want? But then I saw the wine and I will say, like, I was extremely impressed. And again, to tie back to something that I had said earlier, there was so much respect and, uh, to the history of why some of these things were important and and also like you made it more accessible 
Um, you know, like even like you have these Oxfords that are all kind of like frayed and stuff. And you were telling me about, you know, basically it's like a lot of these guys, like they wanted to continue to wear the same thing. It wasn't like they were looking for some Raph Simmons version of their, of their Oxford. And so like that, that approach of like honoring the history of it was something that really won me over with a lot of your stuff. And, and I'm, I mean that there is no sort of, you know, you're not paying me to say that in any way. Like I was very, very impressed, but so why start a clothing company? Well, um, thank you. That means a lot uh, for you to say that. I, um, I, I really appreciate it. Um, just, I guess, to kind of speak to how this kind of came about in the first place. Right. So, <clears throat> my PhD was uh, long-suffering on account of creating the book and all the time that that took. Um, and I was very behind on it. And after the book launched, the book launched in England um, in June of 2014 and in the U.S. in September of 2014. And basically, right after the book launch itself, um, uh, which was here in New York at the Polo Store on Fifth Avenue, which is now closed, actually, R.I.P. Yeah, um, I flew back to England, uh, and I, I had been competing at the World Championships that summer as well in in Amsterdam, and had been training in Philly just as a little tangent, and had had these kind of delusions that. I would go to the Penn Archaeology Library in between training and finish my PhD while I was living in Philly and training for the World Championships. And I was really living... Sounds like a lot to do. (laughs) Yeah, and also uh, we were living really in, in the hood in Philly too. Okay, tough area. Tough area. There were just a lot of distractions and um not to mention, I mean, not least of which was training for the worlds. Um, so I got no work done on my PhD that, okay. that entire summer. So after the worlds, came back, did the book launch at Ralph Lauren, and then immediately went back to Oxford and basically locked myself in my room for about three months and wrote a significant chunk that was still left to do of my PhD. And I, I needed to finish it before Christmas. Okay. Which I did. Um, but that was, that was a really crazy, crazy uh, couple months. And then actually I went and became a teacher and a rowing coach in a boarding school in Massachusetts. So I didn't immediately jump into the world of menswear. Oh, okay. I, I didn't know that. Yeah, I mean, I sort of figured... Um, Why a teacher? It's something I'd wanted to do for a long time. Um, I guess I kind of had this romantic, you know, vision of the whole thing of, you know, what it would be like to be, uh, to be like, teacher at this boarding school teaching, you know, classics and coaching, rowing. And um, originally, I wasn't even going to get a PhD. I was going to do a master's and then... Um, I was actually getting ready to come over um, to the U.S. and to teach in a different boarding school and, and to coach there, but, um, but got kind of sucked back into Oxford and uh, got, got a good offer to do my Ph.D. there, so accepted. But, you know, it had been something I wanted to do for a long time, and uh, so I went to St. Mark's in, in Massachusetts, and uh, I taught like an archaeology elective. Mm-hmm. And I coached the rowing team there, and I thought actually my days of competitive rowing were over. And this idea of starting um, some kind of menswear collection was was in the back of my mind, but was not was not really bubbling to the surface yet at all. Um, and in about May of 2015, I got a call. Um, from the U.S. rowing team, and they asked if I would be interested in coming back onto the team. And to be a coxswain, I should I should explain you have to be 120 pounds, which uh, for for someone who's like five nine or so is it's not that easy, and it gets a right. lot harder as you get older. And uh, I was especially um, it was I was in uh, an awkward position because I had 
really been enjoying what I thought was my retirement and had gotten very chubby. Okay. Uh, and so I, I, but I couldn't resist the opportunity to come back onto the team. And I said, you know, I think I can get back onto weight by the end of the summer, by the world championships. Wait, so how much weight did you have to lose? Oh, about, about 45 pounds. Holy. Uh, about 40, maybe 40. Yeah, 40 pounds <laughs> in, about th- okay. in about three months. Nice. At around <laughs> about that same time, um, I, met, uh, I met a guy called David Rosenzweig um, and discussed this idea that was in the back of my head about creating a menswear brand, a collection, um, inspired by some of my experiences in the sport, some of my experiences at Oxford and many of the anecdotes that I document in the book. Mm -hmm. And David um, was a veteran of the apparel industry. He had been president at Sony Riquel. Before that, he was the first first VP for menswear at Perry Ellis and helped Perry Ellis start menswear. Oh, wow. Um, Back, you know, of course, when Perry was alive, back in the 80s. Yeah. So David had been around the block a few times and <clears throat> was very enthusiastic about this idea. I was not at that time really ready to dive into this because I you were just, just like, wouldn't it be cool if... <laughs> yeah, it was just to kind of bounce around some ideas. Right. And I, I met David through a mutual friend. But of course, I had also just committed to going back into training. And it was going to be an insane three months or so of not only training, but I also had to lose about 40 pounds. Yeah. But David was like, we have to start on this right away. This is, this is going to be great. And I said, well, you know, give me some time to kind of think about it, think about what I want to do. And he just started calling me every day with different ideas and was looking for, you know, different manufacturers and fabric sources and all kinds of things. And Eventually, David became my business partner. Right. Uh, just through sheer <laughs> kind of um, persistence more than anything else. So he and I, that's, that summer I was training up in Boston, started working on this project in earnest. This is like summer of 2015. Okay. Um, and of course, I, I had to spend about five hours a day on the treadmill. I mean, uh, on, the, uh, on the stationary bike, excuse me. On the stationary five bike. hours, yeah, f- four to five hours a day, um, because I really had to lose a lot of weight in a, in a not in not much time. Jeez, um, how many cal? I mean, what is that? Like three thousand calories or something? You got to lose in that? Oh, I don't even know. I, yeah. I didn't. I didn't even think there was. This was not a scientific process. <laughs> this was just like how long can I keep my heart rate up and how little can I eat? Oh, geez. And still be functioning in, in practice. Um, <laughs> because you have to steer the boat and you have to be cogent and you have to help the rowers uh, improve as well. Um, but David and I started working on this in earnest that summer. And I had sort of given him the promise that Okay, as soon as the 2015 World Championships is over, which is in September of 2015, as soon as that's over, you know, you'll have my full attention and we can really attack this together. Yeah. yeah. Because he was doing a lot of a lot of work and I would kind of say, I don't like this, I like this. What about this? Can't we find someone who can do it this way? Here's a 1930s rowing blazer. You know, this is what it's supposed to look like. And he would go away and try to try to figure it out. And um of course, the world championships then uh, came and went, and and we did pretty well. Actually, I was very, I was glad that I had made the decision to go back onto the team. As as kind of painful as it was for that summer, we got a bronze medal. Um, but because of that, I was then asked to stick around for another year and to train um, to possibly go to the Olympics in right. 2016. So of course, David my business partner who had been operating on the belief that, okay, it's yeah, going to be crazy right three, three months of him doing a lot of the legwork. 
but then I would be totally full time on board. You know, I had to kind of break the news to him. How'd that go? He was cool with it. He understood. <laughs> he understood. Um, I mean, the good thing is at least it was because, like, to me, all the additional experience that you're doing only helps your brand in the terms of, of it's not like you were leaving, like, I'm going to go rock climb. It's like you're continuing to be more a part of this world, which is the cornerstone and reason why you started this clothing company anyway, right? Well, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm really glad that I did make all those decisions. And, you know, David was, was great about it all. Um, I trained in Princeton uh, uh, for fall of 2015. And mm-hmm. I would come up, we trained seven days a week, which is actually not good training. I yeah. think. I think Don't you need a rest s- day here? Since like the 19th century, people have known that that's not actually a smart way to train. But um, we did not train in the smartest way. <laughs> uh, it's kind of the reputation that the United States has internationally of like, it's not the best technique, but they're just going to kind of grind it out. Okay. Um, but it's not, it's not a smart way to train. But that meant that I basically had Wednesday afternoon was like the only time I could come up to New York and work on this. So every Wednesday afternoon. So one day a week. I would come up from Princeton and David and I would meet uh, in our office, which was Starbucks okay. uh, on 7th Avenue, on like 7th Avenue and 36th. And we'd have like 12 meetings in a row with various people, with like the button guy, with someone who was going to source fabrics for us, with every, every possible person who could be part of this equation. And then David would also come down to Princeton once a week, and we'd have dinner, and we'd get as much done as we could. Uh, and then I went to San Diego to train. When Lake Carnegie in Princeton freezes, you have to go, uh, go to San Diego, go to Chula Vista, the Olympic Training Center in Chula Vista. Um, and so David would fly out to San Diego. Holy moly. And we would meet in our West Coast office, which was in an out Burger. Okay. Uh, <laughs> and, we, you know, by that point, we started to have samples, and it was getting, it was getting a little bit more real. Um, and, yeah, that's just kind of how we gradually made progress on this right. until, until last summer. Um, I found out I was not named to the Olympic team almost exactly a year ago. Um, and my girlfriend as well, who was, uh, who's a national champion, uh, rower, um, and was, was also training for the Olympics and she finished third in Olympic trials, which is super impressive. The U S for women's rowing is by far number one in the world. Being a, a female rower in the United States is like being a runner in Kenya or something like that. Oh, right? wow. Okay. Um, uh, so we both found out almost exactly a year ago that we weren't going to the Olympics. And that's when, uh, that's when I finally started working on this full time. And Kaziah, my girlfriend, joined me as well. So at that moment, it was suddenly this group of three of us, yeah, uh, David, Kaziah, and, and I, um, who were working on this full time. And almost exactly one year later, um, uh, we we launched right, um, and that's pretty good. I mean, I, a lot of brands that I know, there's because here's the thing: you launched, but you didn't launch with just the Blazer and like one skew, more or less, right? Like some companies when they when they do that, it's like, oh, okay, we need you know we have this great idea. All right, we're going to spend five years researching this, and by that time, they kind of miss the boat, they miss the opportunity, or they go way too quick and it really shows like you see i won't name names or anything because it's not about that but it's just like this kind of like half ass you know product that comes out there and you guys launch with geez like four or five different types of rowing blazers um oxford shirts uh hats and i think what was good and this is something that like is important to me and when i've like worked with other brands um, I've always tried to stress is because the price of your blazer, I mean, it's, you know, I mean, it's, it's what a blazer would cost. Most blazers are around like, you know, 700 to a thousand dollars. Uh, it may be a little bit tough 
for every single person to kind of like get in and get involved. But you guys have hats, you have patches, you have like all these little things that you can get that people that don't, um, that may not be able to afford yet can still connect with your brand. And I think that that's really, really important. Um, because, you know, like, there's got to be something for everyone. And so it's, it's good. Yeah. I mean, we were. Shout um, out the corduroy hat, by the way. Thank you. Yeah. Actually, well, <laughs> I have to give credit where credit is due. Uh, Brian Trunzo is the guy who, um, I guess he probably first stopped by our office, um, I don't know, five, six months ago, something like that. December, maybe. And, and he's like, get a corduroy hat. And he was like, he didn't say corduroy, but he said, you guys should do like dad hats. Right. And it took me a while, you know, of being kind of like, nah, I don't know, to then at some point in, in January or February, I was like, why are we not, this is genius. I, I was like, I would wear one. Mm-hmm. I would wear all of these for sure. And um, uh, so I just have to give, give credit where credit's due that he is the Shout guy out who, um, who was the inspiration for that. But yeah, I mean, definitely, um, I think we are kind of reaping the benefits of this being sort of a longer process. I mean, there were years of research that went into the book that I'm kind of benefiting from that research now. Right. Um, uh, you know, the brand is benefiting from that research as well as the, as well, just as the book did. Um, but it's also, I think, a good thing in retrospect that we did take as much time as we did. I mean, even things like finding the right person to build the website or finding the right, or the right guy to do the labels so that they look and feel exactly how we want. I mean, in a way, it sounds kind of ridiculous that, you know, I'm like, I wanted the labels to feel a certain way. Or like no, I finding, mean, it makes sense. Finding the right buttons for the shirt. You know, I wanted that cotton button most people are like, what do you mean it's a cotton button? It's a pure cotton button. It's it's pressed cotton where it has that um that kind of rough finish to it. Mm-hmm. I mean all Yeah, of I thought these, they were rubber at first. Yeah, they they're they're cotton. They're a hundred percent cotton. Um he's referring to the buttons on the Oxford shirts. On the Oxford the shirts, exactly. Yeah. But all of these little uh little things um took a long time, but now that we're actually launching, I think people can tell that a lot of thought went into it. And and the website, a lot of people have commented on, you know, like, this is not like a normal e-commerce site. Yeah. And that's so great to hear because it's kind of like, exactly, we didn't want it to be like a normal e-commerce site. And we probably interviewed, no joke, about 50 different agencies. Good God. Just about doing, <laughs> just about doing the website. And we, you know, we got quotes that ranged from like, oh, I'll do a website for $2,000 to, to, well, uh, you know, we're going to charge you about $600,000 to build this website. Come and, on. And everything in between. We met people in basements in Red Hook, and we met people who owned like an entire floor of the Empire State Building, and it was filled with, you know, Apple workstations with no one sitting at them and like ping pong tables. And and everything in between. Um, it's been a real adventure, but hopefully it shows, you know, all of the time and effort that went into really every every component of this. Yeah. So the the Rowing Blazer product, um, I would say for myself, uh it seemed when I first saw it again, like it seemed almost a little bit inaccessible. But um, your guys' lookbooks and stuff have really showed, like, different ways that you can wear it. Like, it's not, you don't have to wear it with the gray flannels or, like, the exact, you know, sort of outfit. Like, even from the show, uh, or not your show, your launch party, which I unfortunately missed. But, um, you know, like, you, people are wearing it with jeans, with sweatpants. I think Chris Fenimore was wearing one of those, who's a photographer, wearing one in all black. Uh, I mean, it, it's, it looks good. It's it's a a good look well the original blazer um was kind of like the hoodie of its day it was not a formal a formal you know garment at all right it was it was the least formal actually 
Because um, what, Tails being the most or something like that? Well, yeah, I mean, it developed at Oxford and Cambridge, okay. where, um, I mean, even today, actually, you have ample opportunities to wear white tie and tails. Probably one of the last few places on Earth where that's true. <laughs> um, but it developed really as like a warm-up. It was like something you would wear when you're going down to the boathouse. There weren't boathouses. There were barges, actually, at the time that you would row out of. Um, but when you're walking down to practice in the morning, and it's something you'd keep on if it was if it was chilly. So you would actually row in this blazer. You'd keep it on while you're warming up, and if it was really right. chilly, you you would race in it. Um, and it you know it's online wool flannel. Um, it was usually three button or four button. A lot of people don't realize the blazer originated the three roll two look. Because um, you'd button it up if it was really cold, but most people would. You know, just button, button the middle button, and just let it roll open. Mm-hmm. Um, it didn't have a vent. The vent was an innovation of riding, but you know they didn't have cotton jersey or, let alone, I mean, tech fabrics. That right. was it. It was unlined wool flannel. That was like that was your hoodie. That was your warm up jacket, and uh, every component of it was practical. Even the kind of stripes or the bright colors or the contrast trim that that's the thing that people nowadays kind of most associate with a rowing blazer. Those all served a practical purpose too, because if anybody's seen a rowing race, you know, that it's not easy to tell which boat is which. Um, and all these colors and contrast trim and so on was designed to help, uh, help spectators tell which boat was which. And it's actually also the first sporting uniform. I mean, the only kind of organized team sport that predates rowing, at least in the Western world, is cricket. And in cricket, everybody would just wear white. Right. Um, so the blazer, it's actually the original sporting uniform. Oh, and man, you're dropping knowledge bombs all over the I place. I am, dude. This and is great. No, be- keep going. Because, uh, <laughs> because they were so because they're so distinctive and had bright colors or they had stripes on the sleeve to indicate what boat you were in, they were kind of naturally these sort of social status symbols. So guys started wearing them to class or to social events or to parties or to lunch. Like the Letterman jacket type thing, right? It's exactly like 1950s jocks who just, you know, at least in the movies, would never take off their Letterman jackets. Right. It was exactly the same as that, except it was blazers. Right. Uh, And you knew if you saw that guy walking around wearing a blazer that he was a rower. Because there was no other blazer at the time. It was a rowing jacket. Um, And you knew by his colors or by the heraldry on his patch uh, or the buttons um, what college he was from or what team he was from or if he was the captain or not or what, what crew he was in and so on. Yeah, I know a lot of clubs, uh, even like country clubs and uh, like British clubs, will give you uh, specific buttons that you can put on your sport coat or your blazer at the time. So, you know, that way it, uh, you know, you, so you can associate yourself with them, like the Hurlingham Club or something like that. I think menswear just in general is, uh, is so rich with, um, with with kind of meaning and symbolism. I think it was uh, the costume historian James Laver who said that women's wear, um, women's wear is a function of the seduction principle, that the primary purpose behind the design of most women's wear is to, to make the wearer more attractive. Okay. I, I would agree uh, with and that. And the men's wear... Um, Menswear kind of accords to a different principle, to the hierarchical principle, where its primary function is to demonstrate the wearer's place in the world, if that kind of makes sense. The wearer's place in various social structures or their profession or their rank um, and so on. And I think... uh, Things like rowing blazers or things like club ties um, are, are perfect examples of the ways in which that's true. 
And of course, it's much more literally true in the case of things like military uniforms um, or sporting team uniforms. Yeah. Uh, but those are the two categories from which most menswear derives. Right. Um, uh, yeah, and I think um, that the blazer just just really kind of encapsulates that that notion. No, I mean, it's that's first off, that's a very thorough history lesson, which I greatly appreciate. But one of the things that like I'm trying to figure out now is so with every clothing company, they have like, you know, collections and seasonal collections and all sorts of stuff in there. You know, they'll do something new or they'll do that. Like, but with rowing blazers in my head, like I'm trying to figure out like where do you guys go next? Um is there you know, new products, new other blazers, historical stuff. I, I, what do you think? Well, the collection is designed to be somewhat seasonless. Um, you know, we're primarily online. We're primarily um, direct to direct to the consumer through our own website. Mm-hmm. Um, we are going into uh, a number of stores, um, especially in Japan, where we'll have. Um, we'll have some significant distribution, Japan, Taiwan, places where they, they, uh, they just understand. Yeah. Um, Japan has a very good, uh, history. Well, very rich history of honoring other com- countries and other sports and other histories. Uh, so well, I, th- yeah. I think they understand just the rigor with which we've, um, approached every detail every kind of construction technique from the cross-stitched Latin mottos under the lapels to the way that the seam inside the online blazers is finished. Mm-hmm. There's a real appreciation for all of that. Um, but uh, because we are primarily direct to the consumer through our own site, we don't have to kind of operate according to the conventional fashion calendar yeah of okay now there's a new season coming throw all this away okay now what do you have coming in i think most of the things in our collection um black on black blazer you know a a blue oxford shirt um with a distressed collar uh, with with our little quirks they they're not going anywhere anytime soon right i agree Um, but we do have a few exciting things in the works. Um, we do have a couple of uh, really cool collaborations that we're working on. Um, okay. One that I'm really excited about is with Mersby Schwanen, um, the German knitwear company. Yeah. Really, really historic company. Uh, they use all vintage loop wheelers and, and vintage equipment um, to make their t-shirts, sweatshirts, that kind of thing. Um, and we wanted to... Uh, expand into some of those categories. I mean, as you say, it is, I think, important, especially as a new brand, to have um, some product in categories that's a little bit lower in price, a little bit more accessible to let people be part of the brand, even if they're not ready to jump in and buy a blazer right now. Sure. Um, And MERS is kind of the perfect partner, I think, to start um to start with as far as uh entering into some of those categories so i'm really really excited about that um we're working on um we're working on a project with porter classic not porter but porter classic which is it's the much more japanese much more like artisanal um not porter bagged or is it it's the same Owners, it's a, it's the same family that okay. owns them, Katsu and Leo Yoshida, um, fa- father son duo. And Porter Classic actually, I think, doesn't have really any distribution here in the U.S., so it's not as well known. But it's it's very kind of prominent in Japan, um, where Katsu and Leo are well known in their in their own right. And it's their name. If you look at a Porter bag, it says Yoshida and Company. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it's their company, but they wanted to almost kind of start this new brand that is taking it back to its roots. And everything is made in Tokyo. They do a lot of um, a lot of indigo dye, a lot of really really cool stuff. Nice. Um, so I don't want to say too much about what that's gonna 
going to look like, but we're working on um, on a few bags with them uh, that I think will be be really cool, and will also be kind of a cool way to um, to introduce the American consumer to Porter Classic as well, which yeah. is not as well not as well known over here. Um, and we have a lot of other uh, cool projects in the works. Um, I don't want to s- talk too much about them right now because I don't want to kind of distract from... No, we've no, obviously just launched, uh, just launched our collection that we're starting with. Um, uh, but yeah, I, I think it's not the kind of thing that's going to um, need to change drastically. Like next season, we're going to do a totally different theme or something like that. It, right. It's just not that kind of a brand. It's not well, that kind of collection. Yeah, and especially since your product, you know, is is also honoring like, you know, what you were saying, like, you know, copy. Well, not copies, but you know, being inspired by things from the 1930s and and earlier. You know, like I, I can't imagine that. You know, but I think that one of the interesting things and why, like, I wanted to ask that question. I'm glad you gave that answer too. Is a lot of brands now especially newer brands aren't really trying to do these season collections. Like Fear of God is a great example. I know it's very different than your guys' brand, but they just do collection one, collection two, collection three. And some of those collections will stay around and also be incorporated into future ones for years at a time. You know, I think, I don't know. I think one of his, one of his collections, I'll have to ask him. I think he's going to come on soon, but he uh, uh, was doing, I think there was one that was like a year and a half and then more than half of that came, went into the newer collection. So, I mean, that's, that's great, especially with, you know, some of these brands, they'll make something that's really good, and maybe someone, it took a while for them to save up for it or to try to get it, and now it's gone, and they'll never bring it back again. And I actually think that's kind of sucks. That's a, that's a bummer. And so in your guys' case, I mean, that stuff's going to be there, and, you know, like for me, like I want to get more of the Oxfords. I want to, you know, get more of the hats and things like that. So. It's, it's it's good. It's exciting. I mean, we will do some some things that are limited edition. I think the Merce collab um, probably will be will be kind of limited quantity. Um, but I mean, you're right. It's it's going to be uh, kind of adding and subtracting product, mm-hmm. um, almost sort of according to our our whims, really. Yeah. Not according to like, okay, now it's time to get ready for fall winter. Uh, let's take all that old stuff off the website or mark it down and get the whole new collection up. It's not, it's not like that at all. That's good. That's good. Um, I'm trying to think one of the, the other things. When I talked to you last, you had said that you were also preparing to either coach or row again. Is that still happening? Yeah, I'm going to be racing at Henley um, uh, this year. It's uh, at the end of June, last couple days of June, first couple days in July. Um, this is, again, this is like the third or fourth time I've, I've supposedly retired from the sport, only to be sucked back into it. Um, this year has been especially kind of interesting. Signed up, agreed to, um, to join this project. Uh, a couple of months ago and it has been pretty crazy to balance uh sort of training and losing weight again and getting back in shape <laughs> right with starting this company and preparing to launch the site and all of the madness and mayhem uh and like 18 hour days that goes into that sure um, but yeah i'm flying uh, at the end of this week, actually, to England, and I'm going to be there training for the entire month of June. Oh, damn! Um, and getting ready, getting ready to race. Yeah. Okay. So that is that is happening. That is happening. Oh, well, congratulations on that. Um, we're starting. No, congrats. Yeah, let's see how we do. Well, I mean, you're still going to be in it. I've never. I don't. I don't think I've won a trophy or scored a point in anything. I've I've said that before. Uh, so yeah, that's that's pretty awesome. Um. We're definitely trying to wrap up here. Is there is there any other stuff that you you want to add or mention or any other things like that? Um, I think we've covered a lot of ground. I mean, yeah, I know this is good. I'm like, I'm just flattered that you asked me to be on here, and uh, uh, yeah, I I think that's pretty much it. I mean, 
Um, of course, got to plug the website. For sure. Ro- I will be sure to. Rowingblazers.com. Um, and the book's on the site, too. The book is on the site as well. It's uh, This is just a whole crazy adventure for me. You know, I'm used to sitting in libraries in Oxford, reading excavation reports, writing <laughs> about the Terracotta Warriors uh, or about Trajan's Column. Um, and I'm used to, you know, sitting in a boat for hours hours every day and sitting on a stationary bike and training so this whole project has just been a a crazy adventure and doing everything in new york makes it even crazier trying to make things in new york is nuts no one in their right mind would do it it's sad to say that but yeah it's 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 very difficult i agree and it's just uh it's just really cool now to bring it to life and uh yeah, I'm just I'm I'm so flattered that you asked me to be on. Ah, oh, wow, thank you. So, well, th- thanks again for coming on. Um, but uh, we'll definitely we'll get you back on soon. This was good. Thanks, man. I really appreciate it. All right, man. Talk to you soon. Bye. You've been listening to Blamo. If you like what you heard, leave us a review. It really helps let others know and discover the pod. Subscribe and listen to new and archive episodes on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. Last but not least, you can find me elsewhere on the web on Instagram and Facebook at Blamo Podcast or send me an email at jeremy at blamopod.com. We'll see you next week.